Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. As I was reflecting on this psalm and reading a, a book this week, I um, thought this would be a, an appropriate way to get our, our minds uh, prepared for this psalm. Back in 2014, hundreds of undergrad students were ushered into a plain room at the University of Virginia, and they were asked to put away their cell phones and their books and their pens and anything that might be a distraction for them in order to engage in a time of thinking, a thinking period for anywhere from 6 to 15, sometimes 20 minutes. And some were given prompts and told what to think about, while others were simply told to think about whatever comes to mind. Um, It was intended to be a pleasant experience, and yet 50% of them at the end of the experiment said they did not enjoy it. They didn't like it. And so they said, well, maybe it's the scenery, maybe just being in this room with nothing to really engage their minds uh, is, is part of the problem. So why don't you take this experiment home with you and, and just sit down and find a quiet time and a quiet place to reflect and, and to do this thinking period from home and then tell us about it. Well, they had similar results at home as well. About 50% of the people didn't enjoy it. And had the study ended there, nobody would have been shocked by those details, right? And I mean that literally because the experimenters decided to take it up a notch. They brought them back now to a lab. They sat them down for their thinking period, but this time they gave them a button, and they could press that button, and it would send a shock through their body. And this wasn't a pleasant shock, and they had all gotten the chance to experience pressing the button to see what it would do, and they reflected that it was somewhere between the pain of a, the prick of a, of a medical needle to a mild toothache, somewhere between that unpleasantness. So you can imagine these hundred undergrad students, hundreds, it's more than a hundred, but I don't know how many, they're, they're now going to do this again, and the only difference is that they can mildly torture themselves if they want to kind of break up the monotony of the quiet. You would think not too many people would take that option. 67% of the men decided to shock themselves at least once. 25% of the women, goes to show you, no, 25% of the women did as well. I I won't complete that sentence. In fact, one male student decided he would do it 190 times. Once every six seconds, he sat there and shocked himself. I mean, I hope they helped that man afterwards. I hope they didn't just say goodbye. That was an interesting one. Now, that would have been an outlier. Of course, I I, I think they remove him from any of the statistics they get because it was much more common for them to just press it once. But regardless, it's, it's shocking results, right? People would rather be shocked than, than endure quiet, endure a time of thinking. 
I wonder, though, how much the results would differ if the experiment was to see how long Christians could sit in quiet prayer. That's not the most pleasant question to think about, is it? Maybe, maybe you don't know how to pray. Maybe you struggle with what to say, where to begin. G.K. Chesterton said, if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. He's not encouraging people to just not really try, you know. He's talking about the most fundamental things in life, the foundational experiences of life. He says, don't leave those things to the experts. You do them yourselves, even if you do them poorly. Just start doing them, right? Practice them. And so the challenge of prayer, I think, much like thinking, is only getting harder. And it's worth developing no matter how poorly you begin. If you have to, get a sewing needle out and prick yourself every six seconds just to stay engaged. No, I'm kidding. If that describes you, please seek medical attention promptly. Um, But you might find the Psalms actually to be a perfect guide as you take up the challenge of sitting quietly in prayer. I find the Psalms to be perfect to help us in, in guiding us. It is the word of God. We're praying back his promises. We're reminded of God's love for us in the Psalms. We're also reminded of the breadth of emotions that we all go through. We all experience the sorrow, the joy, and everything in between. And so I would encourage you this week to take up Psalm 126. We'll reflect upon it this morning, but there's so much richness here that you should take home and continue to reflect. Use the, the sermon handout and, and continue to uh, review that with your family. Um, there's some additional questions for you to think through, passages to look up. But this is a, a, a psalm reflecting about the, probably the return from exile that Israel experienced and enjoyed. And yet it could also be uh, any kind of dramatic deliverance from God, right, where God delivers his people. Um, Psalms 126, 127, and 128, in fact, form a triad of Psalms that all, that it begins and ends with Zion, reflection on the place of Zion. And so while on pilgrimage to the temple, uh, Israelites would sing this psalm, right? This is a song of ascents. So it belongs to these songs where as they're on pilgrimage back to the temple, wherever they've been scattered to, they come back and they sing these songs as a reminder, right? To be filled with joy dis- uh, despite their circumstances. And there's an there's a escalation here from Psalm 126 of this kind of reflection uh, upon joy and then the enjoyment of, of greater blessing and security in 127 and 128. So you could take all three of those this week as, as a guide for your prayer. But before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that we have prayer language here, that we have songs to sing Words to say when we're not sure what to say, when we don't know how to feel, 
or how to express our emotions, we can turn to the Psalms and we find these various authors going through the same kinds of experiences. And we can bring them to you in prayer. And Lord, as we know, that is not easy to do. It's not easy to, to stop, to pause, and to simply reflect upon you and your promises. Lord, I pray that you would give us that ability now as we sit under the preaching of your word. May you help us to listen. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see this truth. Soften our hearts that we might be changed, transformed by this truth that we would be compelled to remain in a state of worship well beyond this corporate gathering. That we would continue to worship you this day that you've set apart for us. And may you be glorified in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if I could summarize this psalm in a sentence, it would be that the Lord will restore unconstrained joy to his people who dwell in sustained sorrow. It's in your sermon handout there. The Lord will restore unconstrained joy to his people who dwell in sustained sorrow. And I want to steal one of the commentaries I read, one of their outlines by Derek Kidner. He outlines this into two sections. One is the first section, verses one through three, is joy relived. And then the second section, verses four through six, is joy reclaimed. <clears throat> So I'm giving you a head start on your, your outline if you want to fill that in. Joy relived and joy reclaimed. But this first section, joy relived, it opens with the verse, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. So again, the exiles or the pilgrims as they come back and they're returning, are returning to Zion. Zion... Um, or they're remembering that return as, as a vivid dream. They're kind of reflecting upon what they enjoyed and what they were feeling as they came out of exile and came back to the land. And it's not as if they, they thought they were actually dreaming here, right? But they were in a state of such shocking joy that they felt like they were dreaming. I wonder if you recall experiences like that, where you're so ecstatic, you're so filled with joy about the experience, and usually this isn't a daily occurrence, right? This is, not, this is something that, that happens 
infrequently in our lives, but we can, we can go back to that scene and we can have a, a vivid experience, kind of reliving the joy of that occasion. Zion here is a, a metaphor. It's a reference to Jerusalem as, as God's dwelling place, as God coming to dwell with his people. And so Isaiah pictures Zion as the center of a renewed creation under Messiah's reign in Isaiah chapter 11. The restoration of joy is, is this picture of all the, the church gathering together with angels on top of Mount Zion with the living God. It's a picture of worship, right? Gathered together with all of the saints, universal, across ages and locations, gathered with the angels and our living God, worshiping him together. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of angels. I mean, uh, sorry, the blood of Abel like the blood of angels. Blood of Abel. So it's a picture of worship. It's a picture of gathering together with the saints and the angels, the angelic host, and, and worshiping God. That's the, the fulfillment of this verse that we anticipate in the future, but that we also experienced, right, in redemption. Verses two through three says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So here the people are filled with laughter and joy. Even the nations now recognize what God is doing for his people. And they're declaring the Lord's great deeds upon Israel. So the nations are recognizing and, and giving God the credit for doing this. And Israel themselves recognize how great the Lord has been to them. He has made them glad. He has, he has restored their joy. On the flip side, you, you can experience something similar in sorrow. Right? I, I'll admit, um, I'm a, a sucker for, for music competitions, and I love American Idol and The Voice, and I've probably tried all the other ones too that are out there, but... I'll admit that when I saw Kelly Clarkson sing Piece by Piece during the finale of American Idol in March of 2016, I wept like Keith Urban did, one of the judges right in front. I, I bawled that ugly cry, right, as, you're, as she's singing. And I'm not proud of I'm not proud to say that, but, but I did, right? And we are often moved by these raw displays of emotion because... Kelly Clarkson couldn't even get through the song without breaking down. And if, if you haven't seen it, do look it up, and, and I challenge you to try to watch it without, without getting choked up. Well, this psalm doesn't picture unconstrained weeping. It, it pictures unconstrained joy so that our, our joy turns from singing into shouts Right? We can't even contain it anymore. We can't control our modulation. We, we just have to shout it out. 
unconstrained delight. We're unable to control our voice. And so we just shout. And that's, there's something compelling about that, isn't there? There's something compelling about witnessing that raw emotion, that raw display of emotion. It's contagious. In fact, every year we watch Christmas movies, right? We watch It's a Wonderful Life. And you see Jimmy Stewart at the end of that uh, movie running around, right? He's got this second chance at life, and he's running through the city, city proclaiming Merry Christmas to everyone he passes by. Merry Christmas, bank, buildings and loans. Merry Christmas, drugstore. He's just like shouting it out. He's, he's unconstrained. He even comes home to see four men standing in, in, uh, inside of his house with a warrant for his arrest. And he's like, oh, I'm sure you have a warrant for my arrest. I'm going to jail. Isn't it great? He's, he's just excited. He sees his children and his, and his wife, and he gives them hugs and kisses. And, and then the whole city comes in, right? Because his wife had, had informed the city and, and friends and family and everyone to come and, and to help because they were in a desperate situation. And so they all come in, and they're all joyful, and they're pulling out wads of cash and dumping bowls of cash onto a table that's just piling up so that he can pay off his debt and not go to jail. And they're all just joyfully proclaiming what they were saving for. Like I, was, I was saving this for, for something. I, I can't even remember all the different things that they said, but, but they're all saving up and, and they're getting rid of it now. They're joyfully giving it away to help someone else in need. And it's a, a picture here of the contagious effect of joy. Right? Christmas should remind us of what really matters to enjoy laughter with loved ones and, and to acknowledge the joy giver, right? the one who makes this possible, the one who has done great things for us. We don't seek joy. God grants joy. Right? And so we receive it and we give him praise for the experience of that joy. Joy is a central theme to Advent. It's, it's most prominent, in fact, as you read through the Psalms and the Gospels. That's where you find the most references to joy in the Bible, in the Psalms and in the Gospels, the reflection upon Christ coming to earth. So Christ's birth announcement, in fact, we read this a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 2, verse 10, was to be good news of great joy. And it's only possible to relive the joy of Christ's birth in this world if we've been reborn in him. And so we do come before our Savior. We bow before him. We crown him as King and Lord of our lives. And then we enjoy the blessings that he brings to us. Well, that memory, this reliving of joy, then enters into a joy reclaimed, verses 4 through 6. And although Israel had been restored, more restoration was needed. Right? They, they, they hadn't arrived in the new heavens and new earth yet. They knew it. There was still times of sorrow, still times of weeping, still trials and struggles with their neighbors. Redemption had been accomplished, but it was this application that was continually needed, where they, can, they needed to be continually dependent upon the Lord. 
And so the psalmist here goes into providing two images of renewal. One is this sudden rain in the Negev in sort of a dry stream bed. Rain goes into that stream bed and, and immediately sprouts life. Right? The, when there's a, something dormant that's been sitting uh, without water for a long time, just a little bit of water sprouts it up real quick and it looks beautiful and amazing. Right? Uh, and then there's this other image of sowing seed, the hard labor of enduring uh, the, the weather and the seasons of, of no fruit in order to bear a harvest. So you have these two images of renewal that are provided. It's like two different yards, my yard and my neighbor's yard. The one that's sort of like the dry stream bed that, that gets, that's full of weeds and, and dirt. And, and yet after the rain, like we've experienced this last week, it's the best yard on the block. It looks amazing. It's bright green. It's luscious. You can roll around in it. It's wonderful. And it probably for a week or two looks better than our neighbors who's been working on that yard religiously, right? Day after day, making sure it stays uh, it's maintained. And it does look much better than ours year around. But both of these are rewarding displays of, of a dramatic transformation that takes place in our, in our lives. The, the pictures here are both experiences of God's blessings. One is dramatic and instant, like justification. Another is an ongoing experience, like sanctification at an ongoing growth in Christ. And so it begins, verse 4, with this first image. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Lord restored the people, and he alone could do it again. They're remembering, reflecting upon that, and they're calling upon him to do it again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. We do recognize that, that we go through trials, and we... And they bring us low in sorrow. We spend many days weeping, but the Lord can restore our joy and laughter. We can remember his provision in the past, and we can confidently look forward to that future harvest. The promise of restoration encourages those who have been exiled, those who have gone through sustaining periods of suffering. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, we read this from Moses. He says, when all things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So he's already promising them that this is going to be their experience in future generations. And, and return to the Lord your God. When you return to him, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again for all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So it's this picture of being restored after being scattered. Possibly the most remarkable picture of this restoration is Job, right, where in chapters 1 and 2, you find Job losing nearly everything. He lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, uh, 
his cattle, his camels, his servants that cared for all of those animals. And then his sons and his daughters died. And finally, he loses his health so that he is in torment and pain, scraping himself with shards of pottery. Even his wife says, curse God and die. She's, she's lost all hope. But what happens in the end? In Job 42, verse 10, we read that he is restored. And not just restored to his former state. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He's restored over and above and beyond anything he had ever experienced at that point in his life. Right? He was full of joy already prior to these times of sorrow, and yet what awaited him in the future was twice as good as he had ever experienced. That's the kind of prayer we should be making to God during this season. Pray for the restoration of joy beyond your typical expectations. Don't limit yourself to simply the experiences of joy in the past. Go beyond that. Expect incredible things that God will restore joy to you. Remember the Lord's provision that brought you great laughter and ask for him to come to you again like a rain in a dry stream bed, to be revived. Pray for the restoration of joy in others. When you see those in sorrow around you, those who have lost physical possessions, loved ones, may they look to the spiritual realities. Those going through emotional or relational challenges can dream of a joyful and a restored future. Well, he goes from that image to one of sowing. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. So he may go out with tears, but come home joyfully bearing this bountiful return. And the same rain that refreshed the dry stream bed brings harvest right, to this crop, a harvest of joy to those who sow in sorrow, those who experience the blood, the sweat, and the tears of maintaining their yard. They, they enjoy a blessing from the rain as well. The promise of, of weeping returning to joy is Advent language. It's language we see in, uh, that we read in John chapter 16. Earlier in the service, John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. We have a picture in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10 of this same thing. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Living in a, a world that's wrecked by sin 
inevitably brings sorrow. But, But Jesus offers hope. He offers to restore our joy. He's done great things for us. He has made us glad. And so our task is to remember the restorer, to remember him and pray. Pray for his restoring work to be accomplished in our midst, in our own lives, in the lives of those around us. Look for those who are weeping now and to seek the Lord's blessing on their behalf. A blessing that they've never experienced. The Lord can and will restore our joy and laughter. And so imagine that, relive that in your own life, but also believe that it's a future reality. It's easy to focus on our immediate families, to try to impress our spouse or our children with the gifts that we have for them this Christmas. Maybe we really did a great job last year and we've now upped our game and we've got to outdo it. And we spend all month simply spending money. And we leave ourselves no time to think of others. No time to reflect upon a psalm like this. Well, this psalm reminds us of those who are weeping, even now. I'm sure you have many in your community, in your fellowship, who are going through seasons like this. And sometimes even just the displays of, of Christmas all around exacerbate the pain. It exaggerates their experience of that pain even more. But the psalm also pictures them rejoicing in the Lord's provision. Right? It's as if we're seeing this raw display of emotion from both ends of sorrow and joy. And so I do encourage you as the people of God to, to spend yourselves for others. Let's impress others with our selfless care of them. Let us picture the sad filled with laughter and joy because their fortune has been restored and we've been a part of God restoring it to them. And the Lord will restore unconstrained joy to his people who dwell in sustained sorrow. Of course, that's ultimately a picture that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. It's easy to allow an experience of discouragement to escalate to the point that it's the only thing we see. When you look back on your day and you reflect upon the things that you experienced that day, the things that come to mind most often are the bad ones. The ones that left you frustrated or fearful. Joy can be elusive. It can be short-lived. It can feel like it's always just beyond your grasp. But it's worth fighting for. It's worth doing the hard work of sitting down quietly before the Lord and opening up Psalm 126 and reflecting. Zion's greatest treasure came down from heaven in the form of an infant. The birth of Jesus brought joy and laughter to all who witnessed it, who had some idea of who he was. 
They imagined all he would accomplish, and yet they had no idea at that point how much he would suffer for them. It was a dream for them. They, they were dreaming of, of a joyful restoration. They didn't realize it would come at the greatest cost. And so as we reflect upon the joy that awaits, the joy that we cry out for the Lord to restore, let us remember as well the one who endured the greatest suffering and sorrow in our place. Let's remember what it cost so that we could experience that joy, so that we could relive the joy of our conversion like a dream, so that we could experience the sudden and and hard-won joys that accompany our growth in Christ. Let's reflect upon all of this, even now as we respond in prayer and song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this reminder. Even as we are crying out to you for a restoration of our fortunes, a restoration of joy in our lives, Lord, we recognize that it comes from a place oftentimes of sorrow and sadness or doubt or fear. We see in the Psalms that, that you teach us how to pray. You teach us how to pray through these experiences, through these trials in our lives. And you gather us around like-minded brothers and sisters who can bear our burdens with us. Who can pick us up when we're down. can carry us to your throne room of grace and to experience that restoration that only comes by your hand. Lord, help us to relive those joyful experiences that you've brought into our lives and help us to reclaim that joy as well for ourselves and for others. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.